Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. This episode is with Mike Yarmo. Mike's story is basically the nightmare scenario. You acquire a business for a lot of money, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars that you now are responsible, a loan that you're now responsible for and what happens in month one, but the customers of that business that you just acquired start fleeing and your business, your new business starts cratering. Scary stuff, really. But Mike pulled it out, so there's a happy ending. Without further ado, here he is. Mike Yarmo, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much. Uh, nice to be here with you. So I, I want to talk a, about two things today. First, you are a successful acquisition entrepreneur yourself. You and a couple of business partners acquired a business in the food industry a few years ago and had a successful run with that. So let's go into that story. And then secondly, I want to hear about your own interest in, like mine, in spreading um, knowledge and information and enthusiasm for acquisition entrepreneurship. I think you see a lot of opportunity out there to do what you've done and are yourself interested in producing content and educating people. So we'll get into that at the, at the end. Um, but let's start with your story. Um, why don't you give a quick intro of yourself now, what you do now, who you work for, your title, and then take us to the early inklings of wanting to buy a business with a partner. How did you guys decide to do that? What led you to that? So go ahead. Awesome. Thanks, Will. Thanks for the introduction. I'm glad to be here on with you. I apologize uh, to everybody about the hat. I'm uh, in the middle of COVID lockdowns. So uh, this is a lot more presentable than uh, than what's underneath the hat. So uh, (laughs) thanks for putting up with the uh, Toronto Blue Jays here for the next 45 minutes or so. Um, yeah, so uh, thanks. Well, I'm uh, I'm originally from uh, from Toronto. I'm kind of half Toronto, half uh, half Chicago, uh, but stuck yeah, stuck here in Toronto for a lack of a better term uh, due to COVID. Um, uh, my uh, you know currently what I'm doing right now is I'm a managing partner with a distressed PE PE firm called Newpoint Advisors. So we're kind of half advisory, half uh, capital in, into distressed businesses and kind of the ten million to hundred million dollar range. So we'll take uh, we'll take positions or uh, or work with banks um, or uh, other private equity companies to come in and um, take these take these struggling businesses, turn them around, and get them get them back on their feet, either in back into normal banking relationships or eventually kind of hold them in our portfolio with an eventual plan to exit. Okay. Um, uh, I, I I got the skills to be able to jump into distressed PE uh, industry from kind of my previous experience running a. Um, not a uh, severely distressed, but let's call it a near distressed um, Italian uh, bakery distribution company that I acquired with a couple of partners uh, several years ago. So I actually got scooped up. Uh, I was actually, you know, just a, just a corporate guy, uh, mm-hmm. do, you know, earning a six figure salary you know, with a, an office and uh, an office perks. Um, I had been entrepreneurial in the past. I had uh, done some, you know, kind of more, more side, side projects with always kind of an eye on getting back into entrepreneurship, but, um, you know, with, um, with a family and a, and a mortgage, you know, I was just doing the corporate job. Yep. Um, I had, uh, I would been running, uh, a major food company snacking divisions and we had launched, uh, several new products into the market, 
that had gotten me onto the radar of a, of a family fund who operated out of Ontario, Canada and out of, uh, out of New York state. Okay. They were in the hunt for an acquisition uh, to c- kind of tack on to some of their, their other businesses. And they were specifically looking at distribution businesses that they could eventually kind of wrap into what, what they were doing. Um, uh, I had met them as, as I was launching products and through, uh, through this major food company, ConAgra Foods, uh, I had been using some of their, uh, their uh, co-packing facilities and uh, kind of got fast, fast friends with them as we were developing a business relationship together. And, you know, as we're sitting there, Having a, having a meal, they were interested in, um, you know, what my future plans were. And, uh, you know, I kind of told them that I was really looking at uh, kind of getting back into entrepreneurship uh, to kind of continue on in some of the things I had been doing previous to, uh, to my corporate experience. And they said, you know, if you put some capital in uh, and uh, draw this, the short stick and basically be CEO of this company, uh, we're actually looking at making another acquisition. Uh, it would be a good tack on for us and I think a good kind of next step in your career. Mm-hmm. Um, we want you to put some capital into the business because, well, frankly, we want to see you have some skin in the game and work hard and not, frankly, just get up and, and, and leave the business when the, when the times get tough. Okay. So why don't you come in? We, we've, uh, we've got a little fund uh, together with, an, uh, with another partner to, to, to buy this uh, small, smaller distressed um, uh, a bakery distribution company. Why don't you come in and uh, take it over and let's, uh, let's make something out of it. So they had identified the, the target already. They had they had identified a couple of ones, uh, and this one was the the best kind of the best fit for everybody. Okay, and do you know how they what their search process had been like? Yeah, you know they they really worked with uh, with a lot of business brokers uh, yeah. to, uh, to kind of scour scour the market. Um, given the fact that they had um, you know already uh, you know some established um, footholds in place in the markets that uh, this company did business in as well. It was an easier transition, uh, but, you know, for anybody kind of out there looking for, for a business to buy, you know, a, bro- a broker is kind of a good, good first step. And frankly, yeah. we ended up dealing with a broker as that kind of middle person in between um, us on the, on the firm side and them on the, uh, on the, on the selling side. You ended up working with this broker as you executed the acquisition of this company. Yeah. The, the due diligence and all the, uh, the acquisition process was run through, uh, through a broker. You know, uh, frankly, there's a lot of things, especially when you're dealing with smaller acquisitions, uh, that a, you know, a business owner would have a hard time kind of detaching themselves from. Mm-hmm. I find with, uh, especially with acquisitions kind of below $25 million, uh, you get extremely emotional sellers sure. who sure. have a hard time kind of stepping, stepping away from, uh, from the business or, um, keeping the lid on, um, from their, uh, you know, from their staff that they are, are shopping the business around. So they, sure. they often use brokers in, in that position just to be kind of that middle person to go in and, uh, and, and do, do that type of, uh, that type of work that they have a hard time emotionally attaching from. Sure. Sure. Okay. Okay. So you, you were kind of recruited to be the CEO of this, uh, of this company and, um, of this acquisition target. And to bring in some capital, making you a partner, and so this this was the deal was executed. Tell us a little bit about the company, and and then and then tell us what you learned right after acquisition. I mean, some of that prep that you, we talked about in in our previous call around um, how how reliable the revenue was coming into the company. Yeah, so it's uh, um, you know as I mentioned, it's a distribution company. Um, Similar to like a Cisco or a GFS, if those uh, names or a US Foods, if those names mean anything, it's sure. they're bringing products in from uh, from 
manufacturing companies, warehousing them, and then shipping it off to uh, hotels, restaurants, um, uh, banquet halls, any, anybody who can't buy in pallet quantities, they need a distributor to, uh, to distribute that. And there, this company's main source of revenue was Italian bakeries. So okay. flour, yeast, sugar, um, you know, cornstarch, all those products that go into making muffins and croissants and cookies and anything you see at a, at your local bakery, okay. they're bringing that in from a distributor and very heavy on the, uh, the real Italian side of the business. So okay. heavily located in Ontario and New York state, um, kind of a, a, a cross border, um, a setup that these, uh, these guys had, um, the company was, um, you know, let's call it 25 plus years old and had a, an owner who was really checked out very close yep. to retirement, really just coming in once a week, the, okay, the lights are still on. Um, okay. All the bills have been paid. Um, okay. I don't really, I'm not really pushing the business. I'm not bringing in new products. I'm not doing customer acquisition. I'm not taking price increases. None of those kind of tactful things that a more engaged uh, entrepreneur or business owner would be doing. They really just, this guy really was just, just cashing it in. And yeah. those, those are actually, that's actually a situation we liked because that was, uh, there were definitely a lot of, um, you know, tactful things that we could come in and fix in the business quite, quite early on. Sure. Sure. Um, so that's kind know, of the so ideal, we, I, I would think for, in, in many cases for many acquisition entrepreneurs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he wanted to sell really because, you know, he, I think he might've seen the writing on the wall, um, more and more, uh, you know, companies were getting kind of getting into this, this space from, you know, slow, slow moving, uh, market, you know, the, the food business really just kind of grows at GDP. Okay. Uh, so you're, you've got kind of two to 4% per year or two uh, to grow, uh, okay. with really kind of no barriers to entry. Anybody can get, get a truck by a pallet of sugar or a pallet of flour, drive it around. And that's kind of what was happening to this company was you had a lot of, a lot of smaller guys who didn't want to work for the bakery anymore, or work for their boss at another distrib- distribution company anymore, was coming in and trying to s- sell pallets of sugar or flour to these uh, to these smaller bakeries. And you're watching those uh, that revenue kind of start to drop over time, sure. with no real adjustment to, to pricing or to the to the cost structure. So, frankly, the uh, the checks that this guy was uh, you know coming in and just collecting every week were getting smaller and smaller, and you just didn't have the uh, the willpower himself, or frankly, uh, the next generation to pass the business on to. So that's why it kind of came up, uh, came up on the market uh, for us to kind of snap up. You know, what's interesting is that I, I think for many people who are interested in acquiring a business, one of the red flags that they would see is is declining revenue. Like you, you that would be a red flag, and you'd you know you'd run away from that business. Um, and recognizing that, that that's probably a crude analysis, obviously, you guys felt that it was a crude analysis just because declining revenue is declining doesn't necessarily mean it's a business that has no future, quite the contrary. Um, but how did, you, well, how did you get comfortable with, uh, with the fact that revenue was declining? Did you just feel like you could outcompete these, these little, all these new market entrants? Talk about that. Yeah, and you know, again, when you when you don't have an owner who's necessarily bringing a new product or uh, or uh, pushing pushing for more uh, account growth or any any of the other kind of tactful things to to draw, try to drive revenue, yeah. you know, take, take a price increase hadn't been taken in five plus years. Yeah, well, I guarantee you, the cost of flour and sugar had had increased quite a bit in those in those five years. Yeah, so it was as much of a margin squeeze as a, as a much it was a uh, as a revenue. Decline, 
but you know, uh, bakery, the bakery business was actually growing. So we took a look at the entire market and said, okay, Italian bakeries might be not an uh, increasing business, but bakeries in general or coffee shops, you know, every, there's a fancy coffee shop on, seems like every, every quarter now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, I used to work for, for Starbucks in my, back in my corporate days, uh, at their, I had office in Seattle and, uh, I, you know, I'd done a deep dive into what the, the coffee shop uh, business had looked like. And there were so many independent shops out there. And I thought if I just picked up a small market share of even those guys, I can turn this business around pretty quickly and get that revenue back on track. Okay. So our thesis going into, into it was, is there, there was a good base here. We had actually um, done a tour around of the bigger accounts. We'd looked at that, you know, the, the 80, 20 rule and said, what are the top 20% of accounts doing 80% of the business? Yeah. Let's go talk to them. Let's see if they're still willing to deal with non-Italian guys. And they all kind of shook their heads. Yeah, no problem. Come in and uh, we'll, we'll keep doing business with you. So we said, okay, at least we, we know we can project our base of revenue um, and, you know, let's hire, hire salespeople. Let's uh, bring a new product. Let's let's go out there and push for all that market share that this company had never kind of gobbled up in the past. Yep. And again, with that with that d- dynamic of uh, you know uh, increased number of coffee shops and you know looking for more new products, we could. I thought we could outcompete. And frankly, we, we had um, the ability to bring in house in house product that some of these guys with you know one truck that's driving around didn't have the ability to uh, uh, to pull in. We had, the, we had the assets that were flexible enough to be able to pull in new suppliers, where the guy who was just going to the mill to grab a, grab a pallet of sugar wasn't wasn't able to do. So size itself is an advantage. Size itself, yes, and, and the, the the assets, so like a load, uh, you know, load docking trucks and the the warehouse space and the capital and the relationships to be able to bring in. Because when you set up a new supplier relationship. You know, you're often required to buy, you know, a certain number of pallets. Well, that's right. a lot of working capital that you're tying up into, into the business. We have that capitalization to be able to, what I thought, to outcompete these guys on, a, you know, on a quick short-term basis to get the revenue back on track. Okay. So okay. A, lot, a lot of the signals pointed to we were, we were going to do well. Let me ask you, uh, just drill down on this um, concept of going around to existing customers, existing clients before you've acquired the business and saying, hey, we're looking at acquiring this business, will you stay on? Uh, that seems delicate. First of all, you're you're showing your hand to these guys that the business is for sale. That might immediately spook them. I mean, that might trigger them to say, no, we won't continue to buy from you. And by the way, we're now gonna go look for another vendor anyway, <laughs> because now we know the business is for sale. So how does, how do you, um, how did you approach that? And, and, and if you could generalize your advice here, that'd be great. Yeah, you, you know, it's a part of the due diligence process. It was something uh, that we did not want to do. Uh, we, we did not want to not have that head shake from these from these customers yeah. uh, prior prior to actually you know signing that um, signing that uh, purchase and sale agreement. If we uh, be, because again, so much of the revenue was dependent on you know twenty percent of the customer base. If that twenty percent of the customer base went away, then the whole thesis around um, why we acquired this company in the first place kind of went away. Yeah, and we could have just set up a warehouse and uh, bought trucks on our own without having to actually acquire, acquire this business. But that yeah. would have taken so long to get to that point that we thought the acquisition route was just smarter, smarter for us. Yeah. Um, it, it, we, we knew that the ownership owner, current ownership had a long-term relationship and he was comfortable enough to show his hand to, to his customer base to say, Hey, you no know, guys, I'm in, I'm well into my seventies. I've got no, 
no next generation to pass this on to. I need to move this business somehow. These are the guys to do it. And he actually did like kind of a really warm handoff to me. Ah, okay. I was I was not comfortable to uh, to put any money down on this business without having meet that customers. Okay. You know, due, due diligence is not just counting inventory and you know um, checking invoices versus what's what's in your uh, ERP system. It's there. There's that kind of soft touch with uh, with customers to make sure that you could you know your projected revenue is as uh, you're as confident in it as as you can be. So that that was a, that was a definitive part that we put early on in the due diligence process to insist that um, we had to go meet some of these larger customers. And is that something that you think that um, your insistence on that? Of course, it sounds it sounds great in theory. Is that something that? Um, people should expect to push for in most deals or it just it's case by case some deals it'll be possible others it won't um if you're if you're if you're in a b2b and your customer concentration is high uh if you're if you don't get that um head shake, if you're not under especially if you're not under a contract because there's no there's no contract in a in a food distribution food supplier relationship it's really you're only as good as your last your last delivery um, yes. you know, there's, there's plenty of times, even after we took the business over that if you can't get a, um, you know, a, a fill rate at hundred percent and a delivery on time, the customers are going to go find the next guy who, who can do that. Um, so, you know, really we, we knew that there was a risk here, uh, um, that, you know, if, if you're, you know, if your business is, has that type of dynamic where you're in a B2B, you have a high customer concentration and you have a, you know, not necessarily a contract. Uh, I would frankly insist on having those conversations during the due diligence process with your clients before uh, before uh, you know putting any good hard-earned money down because then your you know your your revenue projections and your budget aren't aren't worth anything. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, um, okay. So tell us what happened then because you did acquire the business even after all of these affirmatives from from the existing clients and 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 what did you find? Yeah, well, yeah. Little, little did we know that um, they they were uh, paying us lip service, and all all of a sudden we found uh, sales dropping even quicker after we after we took the business over. We knew there would be a trend line slightly down after we took it, but it was quick, much quicker than we thought it was, and it was coming from these you know top 20, uh, 20 customers, top twenty percent of customers. And we what went around happening? and they said, um, you know, my that you know the the, the these one off guys that I'm that I'm explaining to you, these flour and sugar guys who are just you know putting stuff on the back of their van, um, they smelled blood in the water. Uh, they knew that a new a new vulnerable ownership team in without that long history had uh, taken the business over. The the chatter had gotten out into the industry, and they started slashing and burning their uh, their prices uh, and trying to kind of chase us away. Our cost, uh, unfortunately, when you are bigger, your cost cost to serve is uh, much higher. You know, to to take a product from your from your warehouse to that to the customer is higher when you have you know staff and an infrastructure and sure. um, you know refrigerated trucks and um, you know a, a larger warehouse. Um, so they were just basically undercutting us, and we were actually starting to lose business pretty quickly. So for as much due diligence as you wanted as you want to do, there's still there's still risk. Um, to you know, to your to your uh, to your forecasts yeah. that you present to the banks, and uh, you know you present to your investors. We we thought we had done everything we could to to say you know we we feel this business is going to do uh, you know X million ne- next year based on our due diligence, but we were quickly quickly realizing that we were going to fall way short of that and actually likely lose money if we hadn't hadn't done a pivot to the business. So that must have been quite a panic. Uh, I mean, your stomach must have dropped when you when you saw this. Occurring, 
yeah, you know, new 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 CEO. I put my, put a fair amount of my net worth down into into this company. Uh, you know, I did, didn't have a long term relationship with my uh, with my business partners, and they're uh, you know they look at Q Q one results under new new ownership and say, uh, hey Mike, what's what's going on here? Your yeah. uh, your your quarter look like uh, look, look terrible. What's going on? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, you know, I knew that, it, you know, it was going to be a, a, a tough kind of Q1, let's call it shareholders review meeting and realized that, hey, I can't fix this. I, I'm not going to I'm not going to play that game where I'm going down to their levels of, uh, of price points. I've, I'm never going to make any money, um, you know, selling, you know, 15 percent below where I was where I was currently selling. Yeah. Margins are too tight in that t- in that type of business. Yeah. We need to we need to pivot. So I put a uh, I put a a plan together on terms of how to adjust this business quite considerably. So still, still try to utilize the assets and the uh, and the in the internal company processes, but do a, a channel and a product change to try to get the get the company revenue growing again and get it back to um, you know at least what our projections were. And so, g- give us the broad strokes of what that pivot looked like more specifically. Like, what was the new business? So I, you know, uh, so we went basically in a nutshell from a uh, Italian bakery distribution uh, business mm-hmm. into a frozen foods business. Mm-hmm. I, I I took a look at the market and said, where where are their holes? Um, it's you know, being be, uh, food distribution is a huge, huge, huge business. You can uh, you know, you can drive on the highway and you can see uh, you know just tons and tons of uh, food delivery trucks all uh, all over the place. I knew there was there was a lot a lot of business out there to be had. Where can I fit? Like, if I'm not a, if I'm not if I'm not a bakery distribution company, what am I? Yeah. And I knew, um, you know, I knew frozen foods was actually a likely a, a good next step for for a bunch of reasons. Um, okay. Number one is the margins are quite a bit higher. Uh, that that cost to serve is because it has to now be kept at a certain temperature. You have to have your trucks uh, at a at a right temperature. Um, the handling of frozen foods is very different than handling of uh, you know flour, sugar, yeast. And for um, uh, the find, finding staff to be able to sit in a freezer for two or three hours and pick pick product and get it ready for for the next day shipment is a is a very different proposition and I think had scared a lot of other companies off not not to necessarily get into it. So really, you had um, Cisco and GFS kind of in frozen foods, but not really doing it to to the best of their abilities. So I thought that's this is where I want to go. Like if I I retrofitted my my warehouse, my trucks, all to to be from you know temper you know regular temperature zones at you know seventy two degrees to uh, you know a, a negative you know let's call it a negative five to negative uh, you know twenty degree Fahrenheit temperatures, mm-hmm. um, and then you know build a process so that uh, I'm trying to minimize the risk of having people not want to sit in a freezer for, for two or three hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I could own the freezer. That was, that was my pitch of back, back to my shareholders and back out to the, to the market when I started selling this concept to every food and beverage manager or every chef or um, every banquet hall owner out in the, uh, out in the, in the world that I want to own your freezer. Mm-hmm. You've got a, You've got a produce supplier. Uh, you've got a meat supplier. Um, uh, now I want to be your frozen food supplier. And then you had kind of, you kind of had the national guys, Cisco GFS all sitting on the, on the top, uh, being, being what's called a broadliner, doing kind of everything and nibbling at everything, but there was no specific frozen foods guy who can deliver you, deliver you everything that, that you need in your freezer. 
I wanted to be that guy. And that's, uh, that's the pitch I made to my shareholders. It's really compelling. I mean, it's punchy, <laughs> you know, it's like a political slogan or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I'm surprised that, I mean, it's not like frozen foods is a new technology. I'm surprised that somebody hadn't come along and, 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 and colonized the space. It's, it's a case where, um, you know, so a major broadliner who is doing frozen foods will have a, a very small portion of their truck dedicated to frozen foods. So uh, they'll partition their truck out into a, a different temperature zones where a very small portion of that will be, will be frozen because it's hard to you know, uh, get one eighth of your truck uh, as a freezing temperature. And then uh, you know, a quarter of your truck at um, you know, a refrigerated temperature, which would be more for fruits and vegetables, and then the rest of it for, for your basic staples. Mm -hmm. So I thought um, doing the whole truck in one temperature um, would allow me to, uh, A, distribute uh, more efficiently, and B, I can start bringing in more unique things because, again, the, uh, the, the broadliners who were in the frozen food space only carried a very like, tight line of, of products. And one way for a, you know, a restaurant to compete with all the other restaurants up and down the street is have, you know, different unique things that they can't find at every other, at every other place. So I thought if I could sell, you know, this type of product um, to uh, this restaurant and a completely different line to another, another pro um, to another restaurant down the street, then they didn't have to necessarily compete with each other mm -hmm. when they were pulling from, from broadliners who were, the ha they had to get the exact, exact same ingredients and the exact same type of uh, uh, finished goods from these broadliners. Right. Right. Makes sense. And um, your, all of this knowledge, I mean, obviously you're, you're speaking now in, in retrospect, having done it all, but it sounds like you had a lot of knowledge already. I mean, you had this vision, you had this, uh, this industry insight. This all comes, I assume, because th this is why, the, the investors wanted to bring you in as CEO because you were bringing institutional knowledge to the table, correct? And, and where I'm going with this is this sounds like something where an outsider to the industry really would have been up the creek uh, in your shoes. But because you already had so much industry knowledge, you could pivot your way out of this through your, through your own insights. Um, so kind of tie this into to, um, address People who look at acquiring businesses outside of their core competency, is, can, you, can you extrapolate your experience um, and, and apply it in terms of advice to them? Yeah, I would, I would say yes, yes and no to, uh, to being an industry insider. I was not necessarily in distribution. I was more in, into, into manufacturing. Okay. Um, the, way, the way I actually came up with the insights was not from institutional knowledge, was actually from going out and talking to, talking to the customers. Oh. I, I, talked to, I probably talked to 200 chefs and uh, restaurant owners and grocery store owners and um, food beverage managers, uh, across, you know, as many as I can talk to. And I wanted to find out what they were struggling with. This was, so this was after you had already acquired the business. Yeah, this is after we had already acquired. And I, and I knew that uh, I was, I was in a losing market. I, I figured out pretty quickly. I'm like, I can't just, I can't compete with them or I don't want to compete in the, in the price to, and race to the bottom game. Right. I want to margin this business up, not margin it down uh, for, for more volume, uh, because frankly, the, if, uh, if you're margining your business down, you're just working harder for the same amount of money. And that's not what I wanted to do. Yep. Uh, so I wanted to get the margins up uh, to be a lot, a lot more sustainable so that we can reinvest in the business. And to, uh, to, to find that insight, I just I asked every single chef, like, what what are you struggling with? And more, you know, uh, just sat there with a questionnaire. So I had like a defined questionnaire of what I was going to sit there and ask them. And every single one um, came back to me and said, um, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily happy with my frozen foods business. 
So that's what right. that was kind of the key insight for me. Um, so I didn't as I, I might be able to kind of speak their language a little bit more uh, by being in the food and beverage yeah. industry, but I didn't necessarily come up in that with that insight going into the business. It was really talking to the customers and finding out what they what they're what they're struggling with with their current solutions. And and you were able to get all these people to sit down with you because they were your existing customers. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when you're talking to a chef, you're kind of running around with them uh, while they're while they're operating their kitchen. So I can yeah, imagine you know, yeah. you're not necessarily sitting in an office in a boardroom and uh, uh, or in a Zoom call like we are. Uh, you're kind of chasing after them in a in a kitchen. Uh, but you know, I needed those insights, and they were, uh, you know, if I can solve a problem for them, uh, they were they were happy to kind of sit sit down and and chat with me. And then, frankly, mm-hmm. when it, you know when I did make that pivot. They, they were already aware of that's something that I wanted to do and they were already kind of primed for it. So it was actually an easier kind of sell in to start transitioning the business over more into a, into a frozen foods portfolio and away from, um, you know, from, from an Italian bakery portfolio. So you could literally talk to a lot of the people that you interviewed who had said my problem, what I, you know, the problem that I'm having is with my frozen foods, my, my freezer. And six months later or however many months later after you'd executed the pivot, outfitted your business, brought in these frozen food supplies, go back to these people and say, hey, you told me you had this problem. I've now fixed the problem. Can we do business with on this new under this new under these new terms? I, they- I, would, I would actually take it one step further and say I kept them abreast of what the process, uh, the progress as we were going through that transition. I tell them, hey, I just ordered uh, I just ordered a new freezer, a new new industrial size freezer, like 10,000 square foot freezer. Hey, I just retrofitted my trucks, and you know, I would send them pictures and updates, and give them that van, that update, you know, message from the president, Vanmar update to say, hey, here, here's my progress. I got, and almost, I'm almost like a grand reopening party yeah. to say, hey, you know, 15 days to go. Uh, I've got a little present for you. Um, uh, you know, you'll you'll see me in 15 days in our kind of grand reopening. And then uh, we just basically kind of drove around and just uh, you know, kind of reintroduced ourselves and sent out a little package to say, hey, we're a frozen foods company now. Uh, you know, we look forward to doing business with you and, you know, kind of owning the freezer. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. And so fast forwarding, this worked. Strategy worked. Uh, it, it worked. Uh, I mean, we, you know, so we, you know, I re- initially I had gone off and uh, started doing the selling. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I understood like all the processes before like developing a sales playbook and pushing it over to a, uh, you know, to, to a sales team. But we got, um, you know, we had enough initial success, um, you know, so a lot of the work had been done on bringing in new suppliers. Uh, so I, you know, talked to hundreds of different frozen frozen food suppliers who frankly were dis- disenchanted or just disenfranchised from working with Cisco and GFS because, again, they're carrying a very narrow type type uh, skew set so they can never really launch um, what they were selling into, into certain food service markets because the bottleneck was a, dis- a distributor. Yeah. Now, now all of a sudden I'm saying, Hey, now you can get it to market. Here I am. Um, yeah. so, you know, had a, like a huge rush of different suppliers come, come my way. And, um, you know, I kind of had my pick the litters to who I wanted to list and who I wanted, didn't want to list. And, um, we hadn't tried to negotiate our, our best deals in terms of getting uh, percentages off on cases or a growth program or as minimal capital as I could, as a working capital as I can put out to bring in all that new inventory. So I tried to use that. Uh, hey, I'm I'm here. I'm solving a problem not only for my customers, but for my suppliers who could yeah. get their products into market. Yeah, and try to leverage that into into better um, supplier negotiation deals. Sure, powerful. 
but uh, yeah, we were, uh, we got, uh, we got some pretty good responses and grew quick, quickly year, year, um, you know, year one. And, uh, you know, after that first quarter of, uh, of lousy, lousy results and started uh, just kind of taking the, taking the profits in the business and kind of reinvesting it back into, uh, into more headcount so that we can, uh, start exponentially growing. So let's, let's put some numbers behind this. So you, um, what, what can you tell me about the, the business, how much business, how much revenue the business was doing in its previous incarnation when you acquired it, what you acquire it for anything you can talk to about, um, talk about there. Yeah. So the business was doing about, uh, 7 million, uh, when we, when we bought it, um, okay. doing, uh, we uh, bought it for kind of low, low sevens. Okay. Uh, again, the, uh, you know, we, we more than doubled off that, off that base that we expected to obviously we declined, uh, uh based on, um, you know, the, you know, three to six months of, uh, you know, having a, you know, being in a poor business plus a transition, but then doubled off that, off that more, more than doubled off that base. Uh, and, uh, not only that, we were able to expand margin. So we're now, now we're in a product, in a, in a channel that we have a unique product, um, you, a, a unique way of going, uh, going to, uh, to market, because again, we're only a freezer, freezer truck. And, um, it took, it did take a period of time to, because now since we had kind of stepped away from shelf stable products, some we had, did have to discontinue some of our products. Um, so it was really, uh, just getting that account growth up, uh, up and up just in the frozen space. So we, as we declined our shelf stable products, um, we started increasing our, our frozen foods, but we were able to pick up enough new accounts such as like, you know, the, the Hilton, uh, chains was one of our, one of our big wins, mm-hmm. uh, share, you know, we picked up the Sheridan, we picked up a whole bunch of, uh, grocery stores, um, that we uh, had never done, uh, done business with in the, uh, in the past. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was a good, good tail one that we had, uh, we had been working on and, uh, the, the margining up of the business and having a little more pricing power gave us a, gave us like a good, good niche to work in when we were in a lousy niche before. And you said it was doing about 7 million in revenue and you, and you all bought it for low seven figures. Yeah. Uh, okay. And what, can you talk about what the multiple was on earnings? Uh, yeah, it was about, about two times on earnings. Okay. Right. Yeah, a very, a very tight, tight margin business at a very high, high amount of overhead. So I really haven't kind of talked about the cost end of the side of the business, but we felt that there was a lot of cost inefficiencies in the, in the company as well, that we could, uh, that we could leverage a lot, but too much, too much manpower. Let's uh, let's say uh, to throw um, that, that was just constantly thrown at the, uh, the business instead of technology. Sure. Um, so that was kind of another, another flip side of the coin as to why the, the earnings were so low, given the, given the revenue size. But the, uh, the, uh, the margins had been, again, without the price increases for all, uh, for all those years, the margins had gotten quite, quite terrible, um, yep. which is, again, what, kind, of why, why, kind of why we liked it. Um, so, th- so you and the, the original, the investors who identified the opportunity, saw this as a turnaround. Not, you saw it as a turnaround, not because you knew all the revenue was going to immediately dry up once you took ownership. That just made a, a bad story worse. But you still saw that it was basically going to need some sort of reinvigoration, reinvention. Um, they they saw it as a turnaround. Yeah, the, the, yes. Yeah, so, so the goal was to buy it for two times earnings and sell, sell it uh, for five times. Mm-hmm. We didn't expect it to sell it when we did when we did. But um, you know, it was, uh, that that was that the goal was to uh, get get the revenue or the mar- the earnings up to a point where now all of a sudden more and more people want to get interested in this business. It gets to a size where 
you have a lot more uh, larger companies starting to look at this and all of a sudden they're willing to pay more and all of a sudden the, the multiples on their earnings start increasing. So that, that was that was our thesis. You know, at, at, it, at its current size, it was definitely just a two, maybe, two, maybe three multiple business, depending on how of a strategic acquisition it is. Um, it, if we got it to the size where we thought it would, we thought the margin multiple would increase, giving us you know that extra extra tailwind and extra kicker. Yeah, sure. Well, then, so get into that a little bit more. Fast forward us to the end. You, you sounds like you were um, driving toward an exit, but the exit came sooner than you thought. What tell us tell us that story? Yeah, so we actually ended up doing some tack on acquisitions as well. Um, so we had extra kind of capacity in our warehouses as we as we grew, and um, there were. You know, there were areas of opportunity we, we felt in other temperature zones uh, that were uh, kind of, you know, kind of drifting back into our uh, into our old, uh, old company. Not not an Italian bakery, but uh, other kind of shelf stable products where we, we felt that the um, competition wasn't wasn't doing too well or um, there was a real kind of consolidation push between, um, you know, uh, uh, grocery stores and coffee shops and um, you know uh, hotels and uh, all, all our kind of end, end customer base they didn't want as many trucks coming to uh, you know to the, into their uh, into their loading docks as had been previous so they were looking at consolidations so we felt we should consolidate along with you know our uh, with our with our customer base and started going on a tack on, tack on acquisition mm-hmm. and again this was a conversation we were having with customers to say um, if we, you know, if we do, if we acquired this type of um, supplier to come on uh, and this type, these types of lines, would you be willing to um, to do more and more business with us outside of the freezer? Mm-hmm. So we we owned your freezer. Now we, we want to start, you know, owning owning that account. Mm-hmm. And you know, everybody liked our liked our our service, and so we were hitting our our uh, key performance indicators. We were hitting always. Always hitting your ninety-five percent fill rates at a ninety-five percent window of time, um, uh, you know, kind of a guaranteed window of time mm-hmm. with the next day delivery. That was mm-hmm. kind of our, our KPIs that we were always tracking uh, internally as as a, as a management in the background. And so we said, okay, now now is the time. Time is right to start looking for attack on acquisitions. And again, there were a lot of smaller distributors out there that we felt we could get rid of a lot of their overhead. Didn't need their staff, didn't need their, um, their warehouses, didn't need their trucks. We had the capacity. All we need is their book of business. Book of business and their, uh, and their supplier relationships. Let's bring that in. Let's, um, let's pull that inventory into, um, into our warehouses. And now all of a sudden we have a um, more, more product going to our same customers. Or we have their book of business. They may be doing um, you know, uh, uh, sales to accounts that we never dealt with. So all of a sudden, okay, now we have their book of business. We can start selling frozen to those accounts now. Sure. So it was kind of a, it was kind of a win-win. It was it was kind of a double-edged sword with the a lot of these uh, tack on acquisitions where we can, you know, um, sell, you know, lower our cost of uh, delivery by, by uh, shipping in more to these customers. These customers wanted it because they they liked us and they didn't want as many trucks uh, coming in on a Monday morning where they're uh, you know they're lining up outside. Uh, and then we, you know, we, we got new relationships that would have taken much, much longer to get if, uh, if we had not done the acquisition. Sure. sure. So, uh, you know, that was, that was a period of five years. We actually weren't intending to sell, but, uh, we had gotten to a point and kind of gotten enough buzz in the industry to say, Hey, these guys are actually really good at, you know, the, the frozen business and eventually, um, had an offer from a larger distributor, um, you know, much, much bigger regional distributor than, than we were who wanted to kind of basically acquire our 
acquire our um, our portfolio and our capabilities. Mm-hmm. So that um, you know that was that, you know was was not there looking for a sale. That was just it was just something that kind of uh, came to us. And I had been you know been the CEO for you know almost five years, and you know frankly just a, a, little, a little tired. You know, do, turning a business around and kind of uh, driving a new building up a new market was was never easy. Um, so I, you know, I said, yeah, okay, maybe maybe the time's right. The offer looks good. Let's um, let's let's divest. So we uh, you know we ended up selling it for um, you know five five x uh, of what we what we acquired it for five x of what you acquired it for, and and you because the revenue had grown and the margin had grown, where did you then get a better multiple than you'd acquired it at? Yeah, yeah, because because we hit um, certain earning th- earnings thresholds, all of a sudden the quality of earnings goes up a lot. They're right. much more bankable uh, once we got to the size that we did. Right. Um, you know, you can start doing asset-based lending or uh, get a, get a better better terms with your bank. So all of a sudden, your your cost of capital uh, decreases, your ability to finance growth uh, increases. So there was a lot of there was a lot of benefits from um, you know scaling and hitting certain uh, thresholds like half a million in uh, in earnings, a million, and then like two million are kind of like key thresholds to to cross over when you're uh, when you're talking about your your cost of capital um, yeah. and I see it with with, uh, with my my business that I do uh, uh, on today uh, today's basis is that the um, you get uh, you get a lot more you become the prettiest girl of the dance as soon as you start hitting these thresholds to uh, to certain bankers and that's uh, that's uh, that's really what we had done and um, the uh, the company that acquired us said hey if we brought this additional revenue on, you know, we can continue to decrease our cost of capital. And uh, we just got a lot more attractive that way. So they could, okay. So, so I'm clear because you were throwing off enough profit. You had not, I mean, you had enough earnings, the loan that the the acquiring business needed to acquire you with, they had a lower interest rate because you were big enough. That's right. Okay. And so can you put any um, kind of give the audience an example. So if you're at $2 million in earnings versus $1 million in earnings, what is, what are the other numbers that that affects and how does it affect them? Like specifically? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really around um, how much, how much you can borrow to finance your or finance your growth and the interest rates that, uh, that you can get. Uh, and then you, you start to become, you, you can start getting into more uh, um, CNI type, type banking. Uh, you, you, you start to be able to, broaden your perspective on how many uh, financing options that you have as uh, the bigger that you get. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, some of the companies that I'm running uh, today as we speak, uh, I have very, very limited financing uh, uh, options because they're uh, extremely distressed businesses. Mm -hmm. I've got just a few very high cost of capital type type businesses. And then when when you're not dealing with you know, an Apple or, you know, a big manufacturer who has, you know, extremely sweet margins, which most businesses don't, um, every, every percentage in cost of capital decreases, uh, significantly impacts the, you know, the valuation for your business. So if I, if I can pay, you know, you know, 5% of cost of capital instead of 20% cost of capital, um, you know, that's basically the difference between, you know, uh, uh, you know, driving uh, an operating profit and not driving an operating profit. And we're talking now about the, the, the business's own cost of capital or the acquiring business's cost of capital? Uh, both, both, in both situations. Okay. 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 Uh, well, why don't I want to be aware of our time? We're at, we're at uh, 10 minutes from one. So why don't we, one o'clock my time, why don't you tell, um, tell me about kind of the, the course that you're thinking about putting together, the content that you're putting out there, why you're excited about this space, 
what your vision is for other people getting involved in the space. Why don't you talk us through that? Yeah. So, you know, whether it's with my own capital or with um, my LP partners capital uh, through uh, through Newpoint, you know, I've run uh, dozens of distressed businesses, currently the CEO for a uh, distressed consumer packaged good business out of out of Rhode Island right now that we're um, trying to turn around and get uh, get back on track. Um, so I've got a kind of a deep reservoir of and, and write a, a lot on uh, what I think is a very niche and really interesting uh, part part of the business. This is not something that you learn in necessarily an MBA, uh, an any MBA or any school course in terms of actually what a distressed business looks like mm-hmm. and the tactics you need to take take in order to uh, acquire and ter- uh, turn around a distressed business. There, there's a lot of unusual language and a lot of unusual processes that, um, frankly, you don't hear anywhere else. And, you know, as I was getting more and more into the professional side of it, rather than just kind of running it uh, with my own capital, uh, I realized that there was a huge gap there and there was nowhere really for where for me to go to kind of understand what a distressed business um, uh, turnaround process looked like. I was kind of mm-hmm. learning, learning on the job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I get a lot of questions on it, a lot of feedback. So I'm really just trying to meet, meet the demand that I see in the market is that a lot of people want to know, how do I do what you did? Uh, how do I go out and, um, you know, how do I source a distressed business? Yeah. Uh, um, what's the process to turn around? Because it is very process driven. It's not just, um, uh, you know, coming up with a big, brilliant I- I- idea to kind of pivot the business. Most of the time, it's just a, it's a very kind of regimented process as to what what the first um, you know the first hundred days looks like, what the first day looks like, and then what do you need to do kind of prior up to acquisition. Those steps that you need to take to ensure that you minimize risk and you've given yourself the the best chance you can get to uh, to actually do what I did and turn turn the business around and sell it for profit in three to five years. And, and this uh, the target market for this or the, or the people who are are clamoring for your information. What what's the profile of uh, like look like this for somebody? Is it somebody who's had has corporate experience like you did, maybe halfway through their career, have a little bit of money, they're somewhat financially sophisticated, and they can go do it? I mean, who 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 are these people that are uh, feel equipped to to go out and do what you did? Yeah, I, I would say that you know it's it's anybody with um, you know either access to capital um, uh, who, uh, who are able to raise capital who are interested in, in buying buying businesses. So it'd be more of a uh, and I would say it's uh, several different markets who are uh, who would be interested in what I've uh, you know what I've got to say. It's uh, you know somebody who's already already got a successful business who wants to uh, give this a try. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody like me who um, who uh, has access to capital, like I did with my with my partners or with my own uh, my own balance sheet, mm-hmm. who can go in and pool capital together and acquire a distressed business, um, or anybody who wants to enter enter the PE uh, industry either through. Through a private equity firm, or through uh, through uh, through accounting, or or the or the legal framework, there's a lot of, a lot of insolvency attorneys out there who don't necessarily understand the turnaround process, and I think they would benefit from my you know from understanding my process so that they understand both flip side of the coins as well. Okay. You know, if you're if you're um, you know you're an MBA grad, uh, again, you're not necessarily taught this stuff at school, and uh, you're kind of looking for a career path, and you want to get either into PE either through a big accounting firm like um, like a Deloitte or a PwC, mm-hmm. or you have access directly to get into private equity. Um, being able to understand the process from a from a turnaround perspective uh, can get, can give you a leg up. Um, at, or again, you know, somebody with um, you know access to capital to be able to just go ahead and acquire a business. I think all one, all three of those channels would benefit greatly from uh, you know from the process that uh, that 
has worked uh, time and time again for uh, for myself or for my firm. And when you say access to capital, uh, how much are we talking? Like, give me a range. I know I know that every case uh, varies, but just kind of a strata here for people to get a ballpark. Yeah, I, I would I would say you know my my experience turning around businesses is in the ten uh, you know really sorry let's call it the five to one hundred million dollar top line. Um, that acquisition really is dependent on the ba- the strength of the balance sheet and um, uh, and you know the if the, the company is actually generating any any cash flow. So you know I've seen companies acquire uh, be, being acquired for book value, uh, you know for five hundred thousand dollars all the way up to twenty five million dollars. So that's you know that, that that was the kind of the acquisition price price range that you know where I think my my process hack the capital stock would benefit uh, for the most. So I wouldn't so say this happened. is a big. This is not a big turnaround um, type type uh, type scenarios. Right. Well, not. This is all relative, right? To to the big turnarounds, the big splashy ones that you read about. It's probably not. Sure. But if somebody hears the the number one hundred million dollars in, in sales, that probably seems like a big business to a lot of people. But your acquisition yeah, I'm not, price. I'm not, I'm not Eddie Lampert here turning around Sears. Uh, you know, this <laughs> is turning around small to medium sized companies, which is probably there's far 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 more of those. Uh, out there, uh, waiting to to be turned around than uh, than you know uh, Sears or JCPenney or Kmart. Sure, sure. So, and you said acquisition prices from half a million to twenty five million. Uh, yeah, I would say that's which, the range. Which maps to sales of five to one hundred million, all the way up to one hundred million. Or excuse me, twenty five to one hundred million. Yeah, five to one hundred million. Cool. Okay. And where can people read the content that you're putting out, Mike? Uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Yarmo. Um, uh, you know, just it's a simple, simple Twitter handle. You'll see my bio, my link for my uh, Substack account, MichaelYarmo.substack.com. Uh, okay, and, and you can just uh, sign, sign up for uh, for my free newsletter, and uh, I'll be making the uh, uh, the course material on uh, Gumroad available uh, in the very near future. So you're publishing a, a proper course very in the very near future. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Great. Well, this is super interesting, Mike. Um, this is, uh, as you said, I think it's considered an esoteric space, but um, there's probably a lot of opportunity there for for those who have the curiosity and the initiative, just like you. you I mean, so it's great that you're he- helping people understand that. Yeah, I, I know from business school, from my perspective, I never learned how to negotiate a forbearance agreement. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so th- there's there's a lot of unusual terminology out there that, you know, if you're if you're just entering the space for the first time. Uh, will not mean anything to you. Uh, so I'm trying to trying to make that less uh, less strange and a lot more familiar to people. Great, great. Well, I thank you for your time. Thanks for um, being transparent and sharing your story. And um, I'll make sure to uh, put your Twitter handle on this so people can contact you there. And and also everyone, don't forget to sign up for Michael on his Substack. Thank you very much. Great. Well. Thanks. Thanks.